Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Bonus points to you if you know that these are the Beatitudes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are the words of the Lord. All right. Good morning, Central Family, everyone else who is joining us online. Hey, just before I come to the sermon, we're good to go. Before I come to the message this morning, I just want to give uh, uh, just a couple reflections, actually. As your pastor, kind of hear my heart a little bit, some reflections on where we're at in this current time as a culture and where we are at uh, as a church. Just a couple. So first of all, here's what I want to say to you. I love you (laughs) and I miss you. These are are difficult times. I was getting so encouraged. We had a second gathering at a balcony down here, starting to get a bit more of this interaction, and and of course, things have changed so much in the last little while. You need to know that we continue to pray for you. We love you. We miss you. Thank you for so many encouraging words, encouraging emails. Uh, Central, you're caring well for each other. Let's continue to do that. Second thing I was just thinking about is this is a positive one, uh, considering our staffing. Uh, As you know, this past year has been very difficult for us. Many of our staff have left, all for good reasons, which is great, uh, but there were a lot of holes, and by God's grace, our staff has been continually now being replaced, and so Corey, of course, is the big one. uh, that You just met him last week, and we're so thrilled that he's going to be coming in January, and then as you just heard from John Y., uh, our board chair, that the search committee uh, made up of, of largely our, our senior population uh, has made a unanimous recommendation on a candidate for our pastor to seniors position. To clarify, that's not the senior pastor, that's my job. This is the pastor to seniors. Uh, that is the pastor who cares for our senior population. Uh, my dad, Glenn Preeb, had resigned a few months ago. And our search committee is unanimously recommending a man named Phil Horton. And as John said, you're going to get to know him a little bit more. Uh, You're going to hear an interview with him. There's going to be all kinds of stuff coming your way uh, in order for you to get to know him. But I can't tell you how excited I am about him coming on board as well if you're going to vote him in. This is amazing. Honestly, when you see his resume, when you get to know him a bit, I think you're also going to say to yourselves, wow. God is blessing us as a congregation in replacing the staff positions uh, that we've lost over this next year. Here's my last reflection. In this current present moment, here is what I think we need to be as a people. We need to be people who have more understanding, more patience, more just ability to work with difficult situations with each other. 
Here's, I think something has kind of snapped a little bit in our society, and I'm even seeing it in our church as well over this last while, and it all makes sense. At the beginning of COVID, we all banded together, okay, we can do this, we're all on the same page, but as this is going on, and now that time changes happen, things are darker, now that we just got this huge news on Friday that we're basically back down in lockdown from March, Christmas is still a little ways away, I think there's a lot more grumpy people, and it makes sense. It makes sense. We are in a very difficult place right now. Summer is gone. Things are tricky. And here's the big thing I'm noticing, an increased polarization within our society and also even within our church. People are becoming stronger and stronger on their own personal views regarding COVID, regarding what our government is doing, all these things. And it's moving everybody farther and far apart. And people are more and more entrenched. Now, of course, we all have our opinions. I'm not saying we cannot have our opinions. But here is what's so tricky, is it's pulling us more apart. And one of the ways it pulls us apart is in stronger and stronger criticism and also in lack of communication. Because we are more isolated, we're not seeing each other. We're not able to talk as much as we used to. And so then that gives rise to things like rumors. We don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. And this is my plea for us as a church, as we begin to move forward. This is not ending anytime soon. As we go through winter more and more, we've got to communicate more with one another, ask one another more questions, encourage one another, and make sure even though we hold strong views, we do not allow something like COVID to divide the body of Christ. Here's one little rumor I just want to dispel for you. Rumor going a little bit around Central, that Central has now become an inward-focused church instead of an outward-focused church, that we have lost our sense of mission. That, my friends, is a rumor. And I'm very pleased to tell you it could not be farther from the truth. Oh, of course, COVID has ruined things. We did not get to do our fall festival this year. That's very disappointing as, as an outreach. Of course, it's ruined stuff. But not only are we doing almost all the same things we did before, we're trying to do a better job at things. So you, you just even heard Lucas praying. Things like neighborhood market. Uh, things like street teams are continuing on. But maybe this rumor is coming about, and I hear this kind of in the winds that, well, the board's not replacing Kevin's position, so we don't value outreach anymore. We're not doing all the events that we used to. Listen, the board is not replacing Kevin's position right now, just right now, because the board is trying to be fiscally responsible. Our budget is strong. We're doing well with giving, but that is in large measure because of the government subsidies and some other factors. Our giving is good, but your board is making sure we don't max out a budget because we certainly do not want to be laying off staff after we rehire them, and we know this is the long term. So it has nothing to do with turning inward. In fact, here's the really good news, the positive. Marilyn Miller has been taking over the Outreach and Missions Committee that Kevin led and is doing an amazing job. Outreach and Missions thinks things are going well and are pushing forward. We're continuing on with things like Neighborhood Market, Urban Adventures, yep, it didn't go like we normally do, didn't have 120 people, but hey, we tried to do it and 25 kids came out and we made an impact with 25. Quite frankly, I think that's pretty good during COVID days. Thanksgiving offering, another great indicator of how outward focused we want to be. We always do two offerings in fall, one at Thanksgiving, one at Christmas. Thanksgiving is typically inward focused on a capital thing. Christmas is always outward focused. This year, our board said, no, 
We're doing two outward-focused things. And so I could not be more proud of you, Central, for the Kwanos giving. This is for kids to know Christ through coming to Camp Kwanos. And you gave the largest Thanksgiving offering I have ever heard of at Central, $31,000. I could not be more proud of you and more encouraged on the outward focus of this church, even this live stream. Tons of money and time have been invested in it. Now, you might be a Christian and sitting there being enjoying it, and I'm glad you are, but you need to know, many other people are tuning in, checking out the Ask Anything series. People are coming to Christ, rededicating their lives, interest in baptism. Our live stream numbers are increasing, not in shocking ways, but in gradual numbers. All of that ought to encourage you. So here is my word and my plea to us during this present moment that we find ourselves in. COVID messes everything up. If you want to look for places to criticize, it will be very easy to do so because nothing is working the way that it should. Nothing is great. Everything's just kind of good, and we're kind of pressing on as we can. But let's be the way of Christ. Let's follow the way of Christ. Much more understanding, much more patience, and if you've got questions, by all means, more communication. Send us emails. We're happy to interact. We will try to communicate well too. But this is my plea over these winter months, and especially as we even come to this meeting uh, concerning our pastor to seniors. There's a meeting that's not going to work the way it's supposed to. Normally, you come meet everybody at the church. This time, what we're going to provide for you is a live stream where there's a 30-minute interview that I've done with Phil because we want you to get to know him. We want to do the same thing, providing opportunity for you to ask questions, trying to make sure that we provide opportunities for you to vote, and especially our seniors who may not be able to use Zoom or have certain other things with technology to make sure that there are ways for them to vote. So, If you want to pick it apart, you can, but the board is doing their best during COVID, and honestly, we're feeling encouraged. We feel like God is doing some great things and doing some new things, so let's stick together as a church. Let's have more understanding and more patience and more prayer with one another. Can I ask that of you? All right, well, that was already a sermon. I don't know if you liked it or not, but hey, that's sermon number one. Why don't I do a second sermon, shall we? It'll be a little bit longer than the first one. Uh, But let's come to our Ask Anything series now, and this is the final part in this sermon series, the final question that you asked. And so your question actually began with a statement and then asked a question. So here it is. Your statement was this, religion is a crutch for humankind. It's for weak people who cannot think and act for themselves. And then your question to me was, how do you respond to that? How would you respond to that? Well, let's just be really clear. Maybe you've heard this before. It's very common, but maybe some people have not heard it. Let's be clear on what's actually being said and what's being asked here. It uses the image of a crutch. Of course, something you put under your arm when you you sprain your ankle or break your ankle or whatever. Why did people, humanity, why did we invent a crutch, crutches? Why did we invent that? Pretty obvious answer. It's to provide comfort and support for those who Because of whatever reason, they broke or sprained their ankle or too weak to be able to walk on their own two feet. And so they use the crutch for comfort, uh, so they're not in pain, and for support as they want to continue walking. Now, transfer this idea to religion, to the idea of God. And this is what a lot of people say in our culture. They'll say, why is it that billions of people believe in, in the Christian God throughout history, uh, or through, through, for, to any God for that matter? And, and what they're going to answer is this. Our ancestors invented the idea of God and religion. There is no God, but they invented the idea of God and religion. Why? 
to provide humanity with comfort and support. See, life, the pathway of life, is very dark a lot of the time. Very dark and very difficult, lots to trip you up. And so the idea here is, in ancient times, we invented this idea of God because we wish there was some powerful being who could help us through this dark and dreary world and this hard pathway of life. We wish there was such a God. We invented such a God. And so now we rely on that God for comfort and psychological support to carry us through this life. And so when people say, oh, you're one of those people, you think, for you, you guys believe in religion? Religion is a crutch. What is being said there is, oh, I didn't know you were such a weak person. That's surprising. I didn't know that you needed so much psychological comfort. I thought you could stand on your own two feet. I didn't know you needed someone to help you think because you can't think for yourself. It's a pretty condescending thing to say, actually, when people say religion is a crutch. So that's the idea of the image. Uh, Today's most famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, changes the image a bit, but just to really make the point clear, he compares religion to a soother that you give to babies. Now, why did humanity invent soothers? Same real reason, isn't it? To provide a baby with comfort. And so what Dawkins and many people argue is that religion may have been a good invention thousands of years ago when we lived in the dark ages, but now humanity has grown up out of its babyish phase, and so we need to leave behind all these babyish comfort type things. So this is how Dawkins says it, referring to religion. He says, I do not think it a very dignified or respect-worthy posture for an adult to go around sucking a soother for comfort. Strong words. So, to say religion is a crutch is to say somebody is weak, to say it's for weak people. It's saying for you who cannot handle life, you need extra support because you're psychologically weak, intellectually weak, you can't think for yourself, you need someone else to tell you how to act and how to live. It's saying to you, you believe in Christianity because you want it to, to be true. It's, it's wish fulfillment. You want it to be true so that you can find comfort. But you need to face up to the hard reality that life is dark and dreary. And you need to accept it. You need to put away the crutch and learn how to walk on your own two feet. All right? So that's what the image is. That's the, you're, you're giving to this to me. And now you're asking me, how do I respond to that? I think I would respond to that by asking three questions in response. And the first two questions, as I'm going to ask them, I'm designing these questions in order to kind of deconstruct what is being said here. And then the third one that I'm going to say is going to be the real heart of the message. After I hope I've done some deconstruction, I hope to really get to the very heart of the Christian answer, the heart of my answer, and all the good stuff really comes in the third point, but i got to clear a lot of ground before I can get to that. All right, so final one in the Ask Anything series. Here we go. When someone says religion is a crutch, the first question that I think should be asked in response is simply this. Who says this proves anything? Who says, making that statement, religion is a crutch, who says that proves anything? It is simply an assertion. It is an assertion that Christians or religious people are weak. They're weak people who need crutches. But that statement does not prove anything. Oh, it is a, it's a very forceful statement. It's also, quite frankly, a very condescending statement. But it is not an argument. I would never say this, 
But just for the sake of this, imagine if I were to get up in a sermon and I were to say, you know what? Atheists are all idiots who are not smart enough to grasp that God exists. I'd never say that. But imagine if I did, what would be your response? I think you'd say, well, that's a very forceful statement and that was very condescending to say that. But that is not an argument. It works the other way as well. This does not prove anything. Let me show you three ways why this statement that religion is a crutch does not prove anything. That it's a forceful, very emotion-filled statement, very condescending, but it is not an argument. Here's the first reason why. First, religion, the religion is a crutch statement doesn't prove anything because it is based on one massive assumption. It's got a huge assumption beneath it, behind it. What do you think that big assumption is? It's the assumption that God does not exist. That's the assumption behind the entire thing. The person who says religion is a crutch is not offering any reasons why God does not exist. They're simply assuming it and then projecting this statement onto those who are religious. And yet I just right away want to ask the question, why should we assume God does not exist? Oh yes, if God does not exist, then probably humanity did make up and invent religion and for whatever reasons, that's true if God does not exist. But consider the flip side. If the Judeo-Christian God exists, then it's not foolish to listen to what He says. It's actually the wisest thing you could ever do. You got to flip it over. So right up front, let's just be really clear here that this statement that religion is a crutch doesn't prove anything. It is simply an emotionally charged statement that assumes God does not exist, but doesn't offer any reasons for why this may or may not be the case. Second, the religion is a crutch statement doesn't prove anything because everyone, not just religious people, everyone wishes certain things were true. We all have biases. We all have wishes, not just religious people. So remember, the accusation behind this statement is to say, well, you religious people, you just can't handle the fact that we live in a dark world in a dark universe, so you wished that there was a God who could provide you with comfort and support to get through this dark world, and so then you invented this God. You made your own wish come true. That's what's going on behind this. It's wish fulfillment. But again, this argument just cuts both ways. It could, easily, could just as easily be said that non-religious people wish to live in a world where there is no God who can tell them how to think or what to do, and so they wish God out of existence. You know, many atheists have fully admitted this. One of the smarter atheists of our day, a philosopher, is a, name, a guy named Thomas Nagel, and Nagel wrote this. Listen to his words. He says, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now, I appreciate his honesty, but notice that Nagel is admitting that his beliefs are not all based on pure scientific evidence. What he's saying is, I wish certain things to be true about the universe. I want certain things to be true. He's saying, I have my biases which come into this. So to, so to kind of wrap this up then, then you could say, if it is asserted that Christians have made up the idea of God because they're afraid of the dark, 
It could also be equally true that non-Christians deny the existence of God because they're afraid of the light. The argument cuts both ways. But my main point here is to simply deconstruct this religion is a crutch statement and to simply say to you, it doesn't prove anything. It's a big statement, but it doesn't prove anything either way. One more quick thing, though, I do want to say about this this statement that doesn't prove anything. Here's the final one. The religion is a crutch statement doesn't prove anything because everyone, not just religious people, but everyone uses certain crutches for support. See, when someone says to you, religion is a crutch, again, it's very condescending because they're basically saying, oh, I didn't know you were such a weak person. I thought, I thought you were stronger than that. I, I didn't know you needed so much psychological support. And of course, the assumption is that that person is strong and that, that you are weak. But is that a, an assumption that we should accept, that all secular people are really strong, while as religious or Christian people are just weak-minded and, and, and need such supports? I think it's a very proud and arrogant thing to say, and it simply isn't true. We all need supports. Listen to this agnostic named John Humphreys. He puts it so well. Don't we all need support, he asks? Some use booze rather than the Bible. It doesn't prove anything about either. (laughs) What he's saying is every human being needs support. Let's get rid of the arrogance and pride here. We all need support. Oh, yes, Christians most certainly look to Jesus for it, but everyone else needs it too, and some people just look to the bottle instead, or you could name a thousand other things that people look to for support. So, that's just a bunch of kind of deconstruction right there. My first response to the statement that religion is a crush is just to say, who says this proves anything? It's not an argument. It simply assumes the rightness of the person who's saying it. It assumes that God does not exist, but doesn't offer any reasons for that. It assumes also that only Christians have biases that they wish certain things were true, and everybody has biases and wish certain things were true. And it assumes that only Christians are weak people in need of support, when really, if you're going to be a little bit humble about it, everyone is weak and everyone needs support. Who says this proves anything? Let's do a little more deconstruction. Here's the second question that I would ask in response to those who say religion is a crutch and it makes life easier and more comfortable. I'd say this, who says Christianity makes life easier? (laughs) Who says Christianity makes life easier? Again, that's the argument. You you invent this idea of God and, and you follow Jesus because it makes your life more comfortable and easier, like using a crutch to walk when you have a broken ankle. That's why you follow this religion, because it makes life easier for you. Now, right away, I will grant, in some areas, it most certainly does. For instance, as a Christian, I have great hope in the face of my own death, because I believe that since God raised Jesus from the dead, He will also raise all who belong to Jesus from the dead. So, yep, I have great hope and comfort in the face of death. Same thing with our own need for forgiveness over the things that we've done in life that are wrong. We believe that God forgives sins through Jesus' death for us on the cross, and so there can have peace in my conscience. So yes, it makes my conscience easier because I can receive forgiveness. But there is much about being a Christian that makes life harder, not easier. Listen to Jesus' words. If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself 
and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus' call to us is to give up everything, that he would be Lord over every area of our life. He will not allow anyone to follow him and say, well, Jesus, uh, you can have kind of Sunday morning and I'll take the rest of the week. No. Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? If you want all the joys and all the rewards of my kingdom, you've got to give up complete control. You've got to surrender every area of your life to me, everything, not just a few select areas. And of course, this is what causes so many people to say they don't want to follow Jesus. They say, that's too narrow, that's too restricting. But hold on, now now you've just flipped the argument. On the one hand, you're saying religion's a crutch, it's for people who need, it makes life easier, but oh, now you're saying it actually makes life harder. Well, which one is it? (laughs) Right? So, in culture, people are saying, what's the easiest example would, of course, be sexuality. People say, oh, follow Jesus. No, that makes life way harder. It's too narrow. It's too restrictive. I'm not going to follow that kind of thing. It's way too hard. And yet, you just said it makes life easier. Which, Which one is it? Again, our answer is life is easier and harder if you're going to follow Christ. And this area of sexuality is the easiest example because, listen, in ancient times, the sexuality of those living under the, in the Roman Empire was much like ours today. Don't go thinking that ancient people uh, did not understand what, we, what we're going through today. They did and even more. If you were a Christian, let's say, let's say you're just a normal non-Jewish person in the city of Rome, you became a Christian, your old life and half your friends, they lived exactly how everyone does in culture today. Anything went when it came to sexuality, and I mean anything, especially if you were a man. If you were a man, you could be married, and you could also have some concubines if you wanted to have those, mistresses on the side, very acceptable within society. That's not even really acceptable within our society. You were free to have your same-sex lovers. You were free to have as many relationships as as you wanted, and you'll find this interesting little word in the Bible, which we don't really use a lot, and I'm sure it's out there, but it's not as out there and as right in your face as it was within the Roman Empire. You know what's perfectly common to do with a group of friends in those days? Yeah, it's that word you probably don't want to hear. It's right in the Bible, though. You gather for an orgy. So this is the sexuality, totally unrestrained, and yet if you are a person who became a Christian in the Roman Empire, now you're following Christ, and now you're going to believe that sexuality is a great gift from God, but it's only to be used between a man and a woman within the covenant of marriage. Not only that, Jesus says, you want to follow me? You need to treat everyone else around you as sacred image bearers of God, and you must put to death even lustful thoughts that are going on in your mind. Make life easier? That's not making life easier. That's a lot harder. And even today, for many people, following Jesus means a lifelong battle with some of these desires that they feel within themselves. It is not easy to follow Jesus. Let's just make this even more clear. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but listen to author Mary Eberstadt. Listen to what she writes. I like this. To put it more bluntly, Do you really want to tithe, that is, give 10% of your income in addition to paying your taxes? Do you want your work week disrupted by the demands of observance, 
being part of a church, and your social or romantic life circumscribed by the rules that many of your friends think ridiculous? Do you want to drag your kids to religious education for years on end, often missing things they'd rather do in the meantime? Do you want to be laughed at in the secular Western public square? Then get yourself to the church. <laughs> it's, very, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek. But what she's simply pointing out here is, do you want to follow Jesus? It means your whole life will change. Make life easier? Well, yes, no question. I don't want to downplay the joys of what Christ gives, the rewards of what he gives. But to follow him often makes life harder, not easier. And nowhere is this more clear than in the history of the church and in this present day for those who are persecuted because of their faith in Christ. We are talking about millions of people who have been martyred, been killed for being a Christian in many parts of the world today. If you become a Christian, you will literally be forsaken by your family, cast out by them. You may lose your job and you might even lose your life. Make life easier? If you think religion is a crutch that is for weak people who just need some psychological support, maybe you ought to read a little on the persecution of Christians around the world today and what people go through and what they have gone through throughout history. Who says Christianity makes life easier? So those are my two first initial responses, kind of deconstructing some of the things that are assumed and what are said within that statement that religion is a crutch. But all that was just clearing the way, because now I want to get to the heart of the Christian answer. And the heart of my answer, if you really are still interested in hearing it after you heard the first two points. When someone says religion is a crutch for weak people, I want to respond in the third place with this question. Who says it's bad to use a crutch? Who says it's bad or wrong or stupid, whatever you want to use, who, whatever word you want to use, who says it's bad to use a crutch? Think of the logic. Of course it would be utterly ridiculous for somebody who's healthy and strong and an athlete to walk around using a crutch. That, that would be totally ridiculous. Healthy people don't need crutches. But what if you broke your leg? What if you broke your femur or your, both your tibia and your fibia? What if you met somebody who was, broke their tibia and their fibia and they were walking around without a crutch and they're in great pain and they're stumbling everywhere and you said, why aren't you using a crutch? You're in so much pain you could even ruin your leg for the future. You could lose your athletic career and everything. What if they just refuse to do that? What would you say to such a person? Wouldn't you say you're being foolish? Lay down your pride. That's your pride that you don't want to use a crutch. Humble yourself. There's nothing shameful about using a crutch if you need one. If you broke your leg, using a crutch is probably the smartest thing you can possibly do. So you would say to someone, listen, your pride is killing you. Lay down your pride and just use the crutch. What's so bad about using a crutch if you need one? Now track this. If God does not exist, then it's perfectly fair to say that religion is a crutch and to call people out of it. But consider the opposite. If God does exist, 
then it is not a sign of psychological weakness to seek His help. It's actually the smartest thing you could possibly do because an all-powerful God is willing to help you, a weak creature. If God exists, then it's not a sign of intellectual weakness to admit, I don't know everything, I don't have all the answers, and God has revealed Himself in the Bible, and I'm going to read this book to try to understand the almighty mind of God who's revealing and teaching me about reality and how to live. That's not a sign of intellectual weakness. That would be just the smartest thing you could possibly do. But let's go even deeper. When people say religion is a crutch, I think the ultimate Christian answer, and this is my ultimate answer, is this. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Assuming all that deconstruction that we said earlier. Now, to show you what I mean by this, this is the good part now. Let me take you to some words that Jesus spoke They come from Jesus' most famous sermon. We call this the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Jesus' sermon is two chapters long, three chapters long, and it's all about what it means to live for him, to live within his kingdom, how you are to live within his kingdom. And yeah, there's all kinds of teaching about, uh, like we saw last week, about marriage and divorce, about, yeah, that's the lustful thoughts passage I referred to a little bit earlier. All kinds of stuff in there, but it is how Jesus begins his sermon, which is just most shocking. Because how do you think he begins? He begins with the very heart of what he is all about, the heart of what the Christian faith is all about. So how do you think he starts? Well, I remember talking with people, uh, friends of mine who are secular people, and I asked him, what do you think the heart of Christianity is all about? And one answer would be, you know, the heart of Christianity is, you know, do good to other people. This would be a positive view that Christianity does good in the world. Well, if that were the case, then Jesus would begin his sermon with a command, like he does later in the sermon, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Love one another. That, that would be how we would begin. But that, that is not how Jesus begins his sermon. He does not begin with a command to do good. Or, or more negatively, maybe people would say, well, Christianity is just all narrow and restrictive and all these rules. That's why I can't be a Christian. Well, if that's what Christianity is about, then Jesus would begin his sermon with, thou shalt not do this or that or the other thing. And yet, that is not how Jesus begins his sermon. Jesus begins his sermon entirely differently. In fact, the way he begins his sermon, if you get it, when you read it, and hopefully by the end of this message, when you hear this, if you really get it, it is so thrilling that it makes anyone who truly grasps it, you should stand back and just be saying, you've got to be kidding I I mean, I've completely misunderstood this. Jesus, what you're saying is so mind-blowing. This cannot be true. It's too good to be true. In other words, you know you've really got Christianity right and you've got Jesus right. If you, after hearing how he begins his sermon, sit back and go, that's too good to be true. Is that really? Really? Is that true? So how does Jesus begin his sermon? Not with commands to do good, not with thou shalt nots. No, his very first words are this, are these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we're going to unpack that a bit. You're probably sitting there, I'm not sure why that's so thrilling. Let's unpack that a little bit. It's not complicated. 
Jesus begins his message with a great pronouncement of blessing. Just focus on that word blessed for a moment. The word blessed means to have God's complete and full approval. Uh, Some translations begin this with congratulations. I like that. Congratulations to you who are poor in spirit. Oh, congratulations. One one guy, this is is kind of funny, he, he translates this as, you lucky bums. You lucky bums, you are poor in spirit. Congratulations, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus begins his sermon by announcing that there are certain people in this world who have God's great blessing upon them. They have God saying to them, congratulations. This is how Jesus begins his sermon. Because these people have God's blessing, they get something from God that is simply astonishing and thrilling. What do these people get? Well, what does he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is that? We've got to quickly unpack that. The Bible declares that God is our king and that he sent Jesus into this world to establish his kingdom. Jesus is God's king And Jesus has brought God's kingdom into this world that has come already in Jesus, but is not fully here yet. And one day it will be fully here. What is this kingdom? Oh, listen to this good news. This kingdom is everything that you groan and ache and long for. You may not even realize it, but you are always longing and aching and groaning for the kingdom. Every single time, You groan about pain in your body or your body not working properly. You're saying, I wish there was a body. I could have a body that actually worked properly. Every single time you weep tears and your face just, tears are falling all over because someone close to you has died. You are saying, I wish there was a world where death did not always reign, where we didn't have to go through all this stuff. I didn't have to stand beside gravesides all the time. I didn't have to deal with sorrow, which just consumes my mind. Every single time you post on social media about some injustice in the world, maybe recently something to do with racism, you are saying, I long for a world that is just. I want a world where there is no racism, where people are treated equally and treated properly. You're longing for such a world to take place. And every time you stand in horror at some evil that has happened in this world, you're saying, I wish there was a world where there was no evil, where these atrocities did not take place, and so many lives and even nations are completely ruined. Every time you groan right now under the restrictions that we are facing and the isolation that we are experiencing, you are saying, I wish there was a world where there was no viruses, which governments are trying to figure out how to deal with and everyone has their opinions on it and everyone's divided. I wish there was a world where there was no viruses that ruined our human community. Oh, listen to this. Jesus is saying, there is such a world. And Jesus is saying, it's my world. I am the king and I am bringing that kingdom of a world where there is no pain, no suffering, no death, no viruses and no evil. This is the promise that God is going to turn this earth eventually into that world. Whatever you're longing for, 
That is what God says he's going to bring. What good news that one day God will dwell with his people again and cause his kingdom to fully come on the earth. That's why I said to you, if you grasp Jesus' words, you would say, that's too good to be true. I mean, that's astounding that such a thing could ever be said. But listen, Jesus begins his sermon by saying certain people in this world are so blessed. He's saying congratulations because there are certain people in this world who are going to get this entire kingdom. They have come across the greatest lottery ticket ever and they've won. They have won the greatest prize imaginable. That is citizenship in this future and perfect worlds. So now, the big question we have to ask is, okay, who are these people? It's only a certain type of person that will get this. Who gets this great gift? Jesus very clearly defines it. This could not be more clear for us. Look at these words where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're reading this in the original Greek in which Matthew wrote these words, that word theirs will be underlined, it will be bolded, it's there for emphasis. Really what Jesus is saying is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and only theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if only the poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven, then notice also, hear this carefully, Jesus is also saying the opposite. Jesus is also saying, cursed, cursed are the rich in spirit, for they will never, never enjoy life in God's kingdom. That's the flip side of this verse. So if only the poor in spirit get it, if that's the condition for receiving this great kingdom which we all long for, then we obviously need to figure out what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it's obviously divided in two parts, poor and in spirit. So poor, we all know what it means to be poor financially speaking, and and we have many words to describe being poor in our culture, and so did the Greek language. And the word here is not poor as in you just can barely afford to pay your rent. That might be poor. No, this is the word poor as in you're a beggar. You have nothing. You're in abject poverty, and you completely rely on the help of others. You are powerless, and you are helpless. That is the word for poor here. And then that's combined with in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Scholar D.A. Carson puts it this way for us. He says, poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It is the conscious confession of unworth before God. And as such, it is the deepest form of repentance. So what is it? Let me put it to you this way. King Jesus is riding by. He, with all the pomp and ceremony, with the army of angels, you and I are on the side of the road, and what kind of people are we? Do we think of ourselves as the rich? That is, we would come up to Jesus, the great king, and say, Jesus, here's my life. I want to give it to you. I think I've earned a place with you. That would be rich in spirit confident in my own abilities, confident in who I am, or to be poor in spirit. The poor in spirit 
would be those sitting on the side of the road, and they would hardly be able to lift their eyes to the great king. They would say, if not out loud, they would say to themselves, I am not rich in spirit. I am poor. They would say, I'm not spiritually strong. No, I am weak. I I know I've sinned against this great king. And when I consider the majesty of the great king Jesus, who am I that I would ever be able to come and speak to him? Who am I that I could ever draw near to his presence? The poor in spirit would say, they would cry out, is there any way, though that maybe, King Jesus, you could accept me? Is there any way that you could have mercy on me? Is there any way that somehow I could be forgiven? That would be the attitude of the poor in spirit. And if that's the attitude of the poor in spirit, then what does King Jesus say to the poor in spirit? King Jesus turns to his entire parade and he says, stop. He gets down off of his royal horse and he walks over to the beggar. Lifts the beggar, you or me, to our feet. He looks us in the eye and says, congratulations, you lucky bum. I'm going to make you a citizen in my kingdom. You see your need for me. Your sins are forgiven. Come on. Come on, join me. In fact, you can come sit up right beside me. I am giving you everything. It's my kingdom. I can share it with whom I want, and I'm giving you it all. You get a share in the whole thing, and you just wait till you see what's coming in the future. Congratulations. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. For you, you get all of my kingdom. That is the good news that Jesus offers. So God does not give his kingdom to the prideful, to those who see no need of God, to those who think, oh, I'm just a good enough person and I deserve whatever, uh, all the riches that should come to me. No, God does not give himself to people who don't think they need a savior. The kingdom is not given to the strong and the self-sufficient. It is given to those who are beggars in their spirit, to admit their weakness, admit their sin, and call on Jesus to save them. One example I came across of this recently, I like this one. It comes from the gravestone, the epitaph on the gravestone of the great William Carey. Now, I don't know if you know William Carey's name. He's a very famous missionary, gave up his whole life, went to the nation of India for 40 years in order to take the good news to the people there. When he died... He was buried in India, and a very simple tablet was put over his uh, grave with the words etched into them of exactly what he wanted for his epitaph. And here is a picture of the exact, his gravestone at his grave. And here's what it says. William Carey, born August 17th, 1761, died June 9th, 1834. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. Now, don't miss both the lines. You can't take one without the other. First, he says, I am a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. Don't misunderstand that to him saying he had really low self-esteem and he didn't think human beings had any worth. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when he considers himself before the glory, the splendor, and the holiness of King Jesus, he's saying, I see my great sin before this king. I see that I am helpless. I see that I am poor. That's the word he's using, poor. I have nothing to offer this king, for I've sinned against this king. But then don't miss the second half. On thy kind arms I fall. He knew what kind of king Jesus is. And he was saying, I got nothing. I'm just falling. I'm falling, but 
I am falling into your arms, and your arms are the kind arms, for that is the kind of Savior that you are. So, to wrap it all up, you've asked me how I would respond to the statement that religion is a crutch. The heart of my response is to say this, a crutch doesn't even begin to show my great need for Jesus Christ. A crutch is for a generally healthy person who has a sprained or a broken ankle or leg, but my condition is far worse than that. A crutch is for someone who can generally walk on their own but just needs a little bit of extra support. My answer is to say I need a lot more than a little bit of extra support. I view myself as completely helpless, as powerless. What I need is someone who can do the impossible for me, somebody who could somehow free me from my sins, which will condemn me on that final day when we all stand before God. I can't save myself on that. I need someone who has the power and the goodness who can somehow wipe my slate clean. Is that possible? I need someone who can enable me to conquer death itself because before death, I have nothing. I cannot fight. I will not win. I need someone who has power to somehow deliver me from the eternal destiny of hell, which is what I would deserve for the sins I have committed against my Creator. I don't need a crutch. (laughs) I need something way more strong than a crutch. What I need is a Savior. And praise be to God, He has provided a Savior And his name is Jesus. Jesus' very name means God to the rescue. God saves. I lean upon him far more than a man just leans on a crutch. That's only part of your weight. When it comes to Jesus, I throw all of my weight on him. On thy kind arms I fall all of my weight going back. For one day when I die and stand before God, and he says, where is the perfectly righteous life that you have to live in order to come into my kingdom? I will say, I did not live a perfectly righteous life. (laughs) But there is one who did. He lived it for my behalf, and he died for my sins. I will say, as a man leans on a crutch, I lean entirely on his blood to cleanse me and on his righteous life. If God were to say to me, and what about the curse of death that is due to you for your sins? I would say, but he bore the curse of my sin in his body on the tree. He did for me what I cannot do. I lean upon him more than a man leans on a crutch. I fall entirely upon his blood. That is why all those who are poor in spirit lift their voices and sing in the words of the old hymn. Nothing, no nothing in my hand I bring, solely to thy cross I cling. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Or as we're going to sing in a few moments, could not be captured more clearly. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's my ultimate answer then. 
And I think Jesus' words show us then today that there are only two types of people in this world. First of all, there are those who think they are healthy and in no need of a crutch. And for those who they rec- and then there are those on the other hand who recognize they are weak, recognize they are unable to walk without one. On the one hand, there is the rich in spirit who think that they have enough wealth they've built up in their own lives to attain before God. And then on the other hand, there are those who are poor in spirit and see themselves as bankrupt before God. Listen to Jesus' words. To the rich in spirit, he says, you don't get anything from God because you don't think you need anything. You have not yet seen your need. But if you will see your need, and you find yourself being poor in spirit and saying, I've got nothing. Is there any way that this God could accept me and have mercy on me? Then Jesus says to you, congratulations. You who are poor in spirit, for you will receive the entire kingdom. You will become citizens of the kingdom now, and you will enter into its fullness one day when Christ returns and God makes all things right. This message all comes to this critical point. It is simply this. Will you not lay down your pride? Can you really walk on your own? Has not COVID shown us all that we are weak We can't even control our world. We can't control our personal lives. What then will you also do with things like your guilt before your Creator? Just lay down your pride. You will not find a God who will ridicule you, speak to you condescendingly about how weak and pathetic you are. That's not the God you will find. You will find a God of love, of mercy, and grace, who to anyone who will simply lay down their pride and come before Jesus saying, please save me, he will say to you, congratulations, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Who says it's bad to use a crutch? Let's pray. I want to give you an opportunity right now. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this message. Maybe God is working in your heart and you want to give your life to Jesus today to receive this kingdom. I want to give you that opportunity. I'm going to put a sample prayer for you on the screen and you can pray this prayer in your heart. If you've already done that and you are already a citizen of God's kingdom, let's just take a moment and praise Him for how much grace He shows us and what He's done for us in Christ. I'll give you a moment to respond now, and then I'll close in prayer, and we'll sing that great hymn together.